Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. The beginning of Jonah 4 picks up mid-narrative, and it says this. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? So this is the last week, and a week where we look at our vision and our fourth birthday. Uh, last week where we were in the book of Jonah. If you remember the story, Danny said it picks up mid-narrative. Jonah's called by God to go from Jerusalem to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and uh, he didn't want to go, so he runs off to a place called Tarshish. He gets on a boat, uh, or, and uh, on the way, there's a big storm. Jonah realizes God is after him, so that he says, throw me overboard. He's thrown overboard, and he gets swallowed by a big fish. That's chapter one. In chapter two, Jonah sort of comes to his senses, repents, and uh, realizes he's been running away from God, and gets right with God in the, in the, in the belly of the fish, and is spat out. And then God says again, exactly the same command in chapter three, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message I give you. And he goes this time and Nineveh all repents from the king to to everyone in the land. The whole place puts on sackcloth and ashes. They get right with God. They repent of their evil and their violence. And uh, that's how chapter three ends. And chapter four starts with Jonah saying, I'm really annoyed about that. Okay. So we're at the end of the story. Uh, What's it about? Who's the protagonist and who's the antagonist? You know, what's a protagonist is someone who agonizes for the good. In any story, you have one. And an antagonist is someone who agonizes against the good. You have a goodie and a baddie. Who's the goodie in the book of Jonah? It's not the fish. It's not Jonah. It's here in verse 11. Let's read it again. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? The word for concern there can be pity or compassion, to love the city. What's the story about? Who's the protagonist? God. God is seeking to bring his love, his grace, his healing, his joy to the great, big, pagan, violent, unbelieving city of Nineveh. 
Who's the antagonist? Jonah. Religion. Religious people. The church. You and me. We believe the right things. We try and do the right things. But we can often be against what God wants for us. And we can often be city-disdaining, city-phobic, religious, moral people that like to keep ourselves clean away from the city. So the story is about God's love for an unbelieving, unjust, vile, violent city and how often religious people, well, in this story, do get in the way from doing what God wants to do. So as we celebrate four years, as we reconsider our vision of what, this is a great story. How can we make sure we're getting behind, as a church, what God is doing in the city rather than get in the way? Because the book of Jonah says often that they get in the way. So we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at God's call to the city, God's view of the city, and God's love for the city from Jonah 3, uh, 4. Um, so God's call to the city, let's start there. What unites the book is that three times, chapter 1, chapter 3, and here again, God calls Jonah to go to the city. Uh, he, and, and, and so God says to the prophet, go and love the big, huge, dangerous city of your enemies. If you remember, Nineveh is like the arch rival at this point uh, for, for the Jewish people. In other words, God is calling Jonah out of a homogeneous city. It's a fancy word, but it basically means come out of a place, Jerusalem, where everyone looks like you, thinks like you, have, you know, has the same view of the world as you, believes in the same God as you. Everyone believes that. Come out of that and engage with people that have a completely different way of life and of you. He's calling him to the big city. Diversity of opinion. What people think will be radically different. In fact, they might even think what you think is not only weird, but they might think it's immoral and offensive, which actually some people think the Christian view these days is immoral and offensive on certain points. God is calling Jonah out of a safe, familiar place to the big city, a place of danger, oppression, and potentially loneliness. And God does this over and over again. He calls his people into the cities, the major urban centers of the world. For example, two centuries later, the Israelites and that Babylon has now taken over Nineveh. Babylonian Empire has taken over the Assyrian Empire. It's a couple of hundred years later. The Jewish people have been exiled in 586 BC. And they're on the edge of the great city of their day, Babylon. It's been a terrible time for them. They've been ripped from their homeland. Their temple has been destroyed. Uh, they've been looted uh, by these Babylonians. And they're now in exile in this foreign, scary place. It's terrible. And they kind of want to avoid contact with the big, bad city of Babylon. And so they think about forming a little community on the edge of Babylon, free from the violence, free from the doctrinal and cultural pollution that that pagan city of Babylon was going to bring. And shockingly, God writes them a letter through the prophet Jeremiah and he says this, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they may have sons and daughters, increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, he's telling the Jews this and these people have just destroyed their city of Jerusalem and taken them into exile. Also, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is our, we have this verse on the side of our wall every Sunday. He's saying to the Jewish people, move in. Settle in. Raise your family. Don't just prosper your little community and your own little way of life and your Christian. 
to seek the health of the whole city, the shalom, the peace, the unity, the well-being, the flourishing. We want to stay out here. There's evil and wickedness and heresy and unjust. Go. God says to Jonah, go, he says to the Jewish exiles 200 years later. In the book of Acts, the early missionaries, especially Paul, what was their church planting strategy? It was urban-centric. Jesus said, I read it earlier about the baptism, go and make disciples of all nations. How did they actually put that into practice? They went around preaching the gospel and planting churches in the major urban centers of their day. They ignored the countryside. They went to Corinth. You've got books, the Corinthians, Athens, Philippi, Thessalonica, Ephesus, and most of all, Rome, the major cities of the first century. So much so, historians now will tell you that by 300 AD, 50% of the urban centers in the Roman Empire were Christian, but the countryside was entirely pagan. So the Greek word for pagan, paganos, actually means rural man. To be rural was to be a pagan. To be in the city meant you'd come into contact with the gospel and maybe been converted. So why does God call Jonah to Nineveh? Why does he call the Jewish people in exile to get into Babylon? Why does he call, why did Paul and the, the early church planters go to the urban centers in obedience to the Great Commission? Why does he do it for us today? There's two reasons. There's a head reason and a heart reason in the book of Jonah. Let's start with the head reason. Do you see, if you, if you spotted it carefully, go to the, not just the city of Nineveh, go to the great city. Now, the word great in Hebrew and in English, it's a perfect translation, can mean big or significant. It can mean huge or strategic, and I think it's supposed to mean both. Go to the strategic urban centers. God is appealing to our common sense. If we have a message that we believe has all the joy and all the healing and all the hope, that all the strength, all the beauty that everyone is really looking for in the wrong places, and we have that message... Don't go and hide in the corner of a countryside and tell the odd person. Take it to where all the people are. And they're in cities. God is appealing to our common sense. If millions are blind to this great message we have, what is your responsibility to be good stewards of the message? Don't go and find a small corner of the world. In the countryside, you might reach an individual, an artist, a lawyer. But in the city, you can perfect the society, reach the legal profession, and reach the art community. Jonah, go and reach the strategic urban centers of your day with the message. Because if you reach the urban center, the ripple effects will go out to the countryside eventually. There's a head reason. It's just that's where we should take the message strategically. But there's a heart reason. Do you see in verse 5 it says Jonah had gone out of Nineveh. He'd gone out of the city. Jonah wanted to get out of the city and he was hoping God might then just boof it, you know. Like I'm just going to sit on the edge of the city and hope that God smites them all after all. And he sets up a shelter with a vine. By the way, there is such a thing as a vine that grows up overnight in that part of the world. And uh, he was very glad for it. The shade, the green, the coolness is sometimes why I get out of the city. I just want some greenery, you know. It's a lovely place compared to the big scorching city. But look at God's logic. You have compassion for that vine, Jonah? But Nineveh has 120,000 people who don't know they're left for the right. I then have no spiritual awareness. Should I not have compassion on them? So God is being logical and emotional, if I can put it like that, without disrespect. There are 120,000 people who don't know where to turn spiritually, and you're concerned about your plant, your bit of greenery. God is contrasting Jonah and, and the plant with himself and Nineveh. 
As one person put it, in the country you have more plants than people, in the city you have more people than plants. Since God loves people more than plants, we should go to the city. Flawless logic. A tree is lovely. I love trees. But a precious and as beautiful and as amazing a tree is, they don't come close to how beautiful a human being is. A boulder's coming down a hill. There's a tree and a person. Who do I save? You save the person. Of course you do. They're more beautiful. They're more significant. However wonderful we think the tree is. Every time you get on a Lewis or a bus in, in Dublin, and it's rammed with people, and you're cursing. You're like, I'm squashed up, and I can't move, and I'm sweating, and this is awkward. You're being pressed up against the most beautiful thing on earth. There's thousands of them every day coming in and out of Dublin. The city is full of them. Does it concern you? It wasn't a concern to Jonah, and God rebuked him. Is it a concern to you? Do you and I need the same rebuke? You're more bothered about your little nice house, your bit of greenery, your comfortable lifestyle. You're not bothered? It's the same rebuke that Jonah got, we got. Recently, missiologists have been thinking afresh, and Tim Keller is kind of now the thought leader in the public, in the sort of the popular sphere around why did the early church go to the major cities? Why did they go to the urban centers of their day? And Keller, who I've taken lots of his material to put this talk together, says uh, a few reasons. He says, well, first of all, there's more people. We just talked about that. There's more people in the cities. And increasingly so, our world is getting more and more urban every decade, not more and more uh, rural. Also, you get all types of people. In the city, you get new migrants, new people groups, the young people, the poor, the cultural elites, the nations of the world. The city is full of all types of people. If we want to be faithful to the Great Commission of reaching all people groups, then they're all here in the city. In the countryside, it's much more homogeneous. You can normally get one type of person. But also, the whole point about the strategic bit, as, as the city goes, so the culture goes, so the country goes. That is why the Roman Empire, which was so big and powerful, was so radically transformed by Christianity because they got to the urban centers and made a difference in the cities. Speaking personally, this is the main reason Leanne and I came to Dublin six years ago and one week on the 24th of September 2012. This is why we came. We were persuaded by the evidence of the New Testament that the most effective way and of church history to spread the gospel is to plant gospel-centered churches that plant gospel-centered churches in the heart of cities. And when you think about Dublin, it has one-third of the population of Ireland in it, 1.3 million if you include the, out the greater Dublin. But over 50% on any given week of the whole of Ireland is coming in and out and commuting in and out for, for pleasure or work. Two, three million people every week coming in and out of Dublin. And Dublin, you get all types of people. You know that. All nationalities, all people groups. You get the young people in the university. You get the poor. You get the cultural elite. Everyone's packed in together. That's what cities do. If you could affect Dublin with the gospel, you'd have ripple effects throughout Ireland. And because Dublin hosts the top pharmaceutical, financial, and now most famously the tech, cult, uh, tech companies of the world... If you can affect Dublin, you could affect the world. That's why we came. Go and love the great strategic city. That's what God's saying to Jonah. It's what he said to the exiles in Babylon. It's what the New Testament apostles did. It's what we should do. In terms of the English-speaking world, Southern Ireland has fewer gospel-centered churches than anywhere else in the whole world. Strategically, we should be here. 
Leanne and I are here because we heard God's call to the city. You know, when I said to Leanne, I think we should consider Dublin. I'm half Irish. My family's here, so I had more connections. She was like, she, you know, no, we're not going, not going. I've heard it's really expensive, you know. And the Irish stink. But, you know, that, she didn't say that. But, but you do. No, um, the, uh, and she had a whole day away, literally on the edge of the city of Leeds where we lived in a place called Ilkley, and heard the f- call afresh. Go put aside personal comfort and put my gospel first and come. So I was like, we should think about it. She came back from her retreat day and go, let's, let's buy flights and let's go. It was an amazing thing. Does that mean we should not have Christians that go to the countryside? Of course not. Each individual needs to work out how they can best serve God. There's no biblical warrant to say all Christians must live in the city. No, but the church institutionally, the church, the church strategically should absolutely put all their energy, all their resources, all their metabolism, raise up leaders for the sake of the urban centers. People are moving into the cities of the world at a faster rate than ever before, and the church isn't following us quick enough. There's more people coming into the cities of this world than there are churches. So we need to put our missionary effort into the cities. Let's hear God's call afresh. Go to the great, strategic, big city of Dublin and proclaim the message I give you. That's the call of God. That's why we're here. That's why we exist as a church. Secondly, God's view of the city. You see, on the surface, God's view of the city is almost contradictory and weird. Firstly, in chapter 1, verse 1, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And then in chapter 3, when Jonah finally does go, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In other words, God is saying, repent. Give up your evil, your injustice, your violence, or else I'm going to judge you. I'm going to get you. This is like a conservative God, you know? God of a traditional values kind of guy. But why does he relent? Chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he, evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And that was Jonah's problem. God is a bleeding heart liberal. He'll forgive anyone at any moment. Do you see his stupid little speech? Isn't that what I said, God, when I tried to forestall you? I knew you are gracious. You're so compassionate. You're far too liberal. You're so gracious. You give anyone a second chance at any moment. You'll forgive anyone. You're so tolerant, God. So is God a conservative or a liberal? Huh. Which is he? Chapter 4, 11 again. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right from their left and also many animals? What a weird ending. Like animals get the final say in the book. I know there's a big fish, but like weird. I think God's not saying I'm an animal lover, though he loves animals, he made them. And the point is this, what are animals back then? Their currency, their money. Money today is small and metal and thin and papery. Back then it was big and hairy. And you traded it. Livestock are the economy of the city. In other words, we mustn't say the city is a terrible, dark place, but we love people. We'll endure the big, bad city because we love the people. God says, no, love the city, the economy, the housing, the healthcare. Play your part. Get stuck in. Make the city flourish in any way and every way that you can. Is God a conservative or a liberal? Are we to tell people to repent from their sins, otherwise God's going to get them? Or are we to put all our energy into reforming society and improving the practical conditions of the city? Is God a conservative or a liberal? Yes. Yes. He'll bust any political framework you put up on him. We must do both. We must be clear on the gospel call, eternal salvation, eternal destruction. 
And we must be clear that we want to love people practically today in any way we can, both with acts of mercy and systemically trying to change the city with whatever resources we have. God's view of the city will break your categories. Jonah can't handle it, can you? Jonah's freaking out. Does, he can't get God. What are you doing? Today is the last month of September, 30th of September. September has a day we all know. September 11, 9-11. September 11, 2001, I remember it when I was at university, was a day when our modern Western world shook in horror. And many started to feel less safe and secure, and for good reason. Terror became this new phenomenon in our world. Well, the day that shook the ancient world was the 24th of August, 24th of August 410. Anyone know what day that was? Alaric the Goth came over the wall and sacked Rome. He and his men came over, invaded, plundered, and killed Rome. For the first time in a thousand years, the impregnable Rome was sacked, and by the barbarians. And what is interesting is that the Goths wasted it and left, didn't occupy it, they didn't settle, they didn't take over. It was as if their way to say to superior civilization, see what we can do, you're no masters of us. They just left. And it sent a shockwave throughout the, 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 the 5th century world, the beginning of the, fourth, uh, the, the four, 410. Like September the 11th, still has a, uh, it still has a ripple effect today. People quickly began to rethink and re-examine everything. If Rome is not safe, what is safe? If Rome can fall, what, is there anything that I can say doesn't fall? And it's not just personal or financial. It's like, if the impossible has happened, Rome... Well, how do I know I'm thinking right about anything anymore? Everything was uncertain. Everything was up for grab. It shattered the ancient world. And interestingly, most Christians were shattered just as much as the pagans. This is all from Keller. I didn't get this. A hundred years before the fall of Rome, Christians started moving up in the government and businesses, and they were becoming the cultural elites. And everyone thought, this is God's doing. Look, we're bringing the kingdom on earth. As Rome will be one, we'll, we'll literally bring God's kingdom to earth right now. Uh, and so the Christians were asking, well, what's happening? Like, why is the world shaking so much, God? What are you doing? Why have you abandoned us? And into this vacuum came Augustine and his great book, The City of God. And he helped everyone to realize there are actually two cities within any city, the city of man and the city of God. And we mustn't confuse the two. So we, Augustine was saying to the Christians, if you're freaking out right now, because you've, it's because you've confused God's eternal, unshakable city with this earthly city of man. You know, Rome was called Civitas Eternitas, the eternal city. They literally had taken the title of God's city and put it onto them. Augustine reminded them there's only one city that cannot be shaken, one city that bombs and terror and violence never occur, the city of God. It's absolutely safe. If you kill the members of this man city, they're gone. You kill the members of God's city, they get better quarters. <laughs> they get moved to where they're going to be forever anyway. Psalm 46, hugely, hugely important to me personally. I remember personally, just as I was feeling, we were six people as a church. We just, we just arrived. It was all financially very risky for us. I remember praying Psalm 46 again and again, walking up the river Liffey. It's, all, it's, it's, it's a time just after Jonah's time, and it's just about when Assyrian uh, Empire is going to take the northern empire of Israel. A guy called Sennacherib is king of, um, of uh, Assyria. And the psalm says this, Mountains falling into the heart of the sea, waters roaring and foaming, and the mountains quaking. Civilization is falling apart. What does the psalm say? I was walking on the river Liffey. There's a river whose streams... Make glad the city of God, 
the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. When the cities of this world shake, there's a city that will never shake. When the cities of this world crumble, there is a city that's never going to crumble. If you're freaking out right now in 410, it's because you put your security in earthly wealth, in earthly prosperity, and you need to move all that hope and all that trust into the city of God, which is secure. Nothing can move it. For centuries, Rome had stood seemingly impregnable. Now it's fallen, and Christians are confused because they thought it was God's city. No. You know, there's a very famous book which I was told to read when I first arrived in Ireland, uh, Thomas Cahill, How the Irish Saved Civilization. Brilliant little book. Read it. A historian from Ireland saying, what happened after when Rome was sacked and they went into, the world went into the dark ages and became very anarchic? There was like, what happened? He says, the Irish saved civilization. The, you know, so far from Western Europe that like the Goths didn't quite get over here and the monks formed communities in the 6th century, didn't they? You know, you can go to Glendalough and see these places. Amazing. What were they doing? They literally saved civilization. They were writing down Latin and Greek, Christian, and, and pay, you know, not, um, non-Christian works. We wouldn't have it if it wasn't for these monks who then, they, they kept truth and justice and love and culture and literature alive when the world was going crazy. Hidden away here in Ireland, far from mainland Europe, they copied manuscripts In other words, when the earthly cities of the world were falling apart, the Irish monks got together to say, how do we build God's city forever? How do we live for Christ? And they, for example, famously said, how can we live together and then consume 10% so we can share 90% of of what we make? Live simply. It's the city of God working that never crumbles. We may disagree with some of the methods of these monks and how they isolated themselves, but their spirit and their trust was right. They were living for an eternal city. Augustine says, if you're freaking out when the cities of this world crumble a bit, 2008, the financial crash, if you're free, it's because you had your trust in the wrong place. The city of man, not the eternal city. But don't go too far. It's not bad old Rome, no. At the end of the Bible, what's going to happen? It tells us the new Jerusalem is going to come down from heaven to earth. What's happening at the end of history? Revelation 21, 22. We don't go out of this world to some ethereal place. The city of God that cannot be broken or burned or stopped comes down to cleanse and purify and heal the cities of this world. We're not leaving. God is bringing his city here. Here's how you know you're a citizen of the city of God over the city of man. You're the best citizen of the city of man. Because you haven't got all your hopes in it. You can actually serve it for its sake rather than for your sake. You don't need the city of man to feed you in any way spiritually doesn't need to give you security in it. You, you, that's elsewhere, so you can serve it just for the sake of serving it. That is what our city groups are all about, the spirit of God and the kingdom, the, the gospel of the kingdom, trying to make a difference to change the way this city operates, not on self-interest and power, but on service, giving up power and glory in his name. So do you see, summarize this big idea. If you over-identify with the city of man, you end up like the Christians in Rome. Your hope is in the wrong place. If you under-identify with the city of man, you end up like Jonah, on the outskirts of the city, cursing it. We mustn't over-identify or under-identify. So I call each of you, I call myself, 
I call us afresh to the vision of the church to make a difference in this city, spiritually, culturally, and socially. The call is to take your hopes out of the city of man, the city of money, career, and pleasure, and put your hopes fully into the eternal city so that you can serve this city well. I call you to resist the temptation of Jonah to make your life and career and family choices about what is easy for you. The city can be expensive. It can be dangerous. It can put pressure on your time and schedule. The city can be a harder place to raise kids. The city can feel alien. You want to be closer to where you were from originally. There might be better opportunities outside of the city of Dublin when a career advancement comes. Hear the call afresh. Put aside personal comfort. Settle down. Be here. Get married. Invest for the sake of the gospel. Have compassion on 1.3 million people and 2 plus million people that come in and out every week. It's easy to have Jonah syndrome and feel like running. God says make decisions for the city. This is a guy who, in his commentary, says this was a devastating critique of Jonah's spiritual condition. But it raises an issue no less disturbing about our own lives as Christians. Could the same be said of us? Do we care more about the items in our gardens, the produce of our fields, and perhaps the contents of our garage and home than we do about our fellow men and women and the spread of the gospel to them? Do we care more in the last analysis about our own comforts and plans than about the evangelism of the world in our time? The statistics of giving or praying or going in the cause of Christ throughout the earth provide embarrassing reading to the church. They raise very real questions about whether we have begun to get rid ourselves of Jonah syndrome. I say this, I'll say it again. If you came to Dublin for one year to study, try and stay for two. Stick around. Don't just take from the city and go when you've taken. That's the way the city of the world works. Come to the city, take from it and give to it. If you come for two years, stay for four. If you come for five, stay for ten. Have your family here. It's hard. Yeah, it might be hard. If you come for 10 years, never leave. Make long-term plans to settle down and make a difference here. If God is concerned for Dublin, should we not be? If you're getting married and thinking about your family in the long term, you might have to forsake some of your original thoughts about family and career and, and comfort and your lifestyle. Yeah, you might. Jesus died on a cross. He had to forsake lots. Jonah's having to be squared like, am I going to have to do this? Yeah, you might. That's the call to the city. Sound impossible? Undesirable? You feel scared? You feel like running away like Jonah? Don't be so straight with me, Steve. I just want to get out. That's what Jonah felt like. Well, remember thirdly, God's love for the city. Do you remember years later, another Jonah would come and he would go outside of the city, not to condemn it, hoping bad things will happen. What does Hebrews 13 say? And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, the earthly one, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Jonah went outside the city to spare his life and condemn it. Jesus was dragged outside the city, weeping for it, died for its salvation, not its condemnation. When you know God's love for you through Christ... It can change you to be a missionary here. It can give you the courage, the vision. You'll make the sacrifices because you realize what Jesus did to secure the eternal city. You don't have to have your hopes in this in any earthly city because you have your hopes elsewhere. You can make decisions with the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of me in mind. I said in week one, we don't know how the story of Jonah ends, do we? It finishes with animals, a big question mark. 
And why, well, like Jesus, often parables are left on a cliffhanger, so we put ourselves in the story and write the final paragraph. And I guess that's what I'm doing today. Will you hear the call afresh? Will you make the sacrifices? Will you think long term? Will you, will you engage? But we do know how the story ends. How do we know about the book of Jonah? How do we know about chapter 4? It's just Jonah dialoguing with God. How would you know? Jonah had to tell someone. What kind of man would tell you about his bigotry, his racism, his sin, his rebellion, his foolish life? I hate your love, God thing. You have compassion on so many people. It's horrible, you know? What kind of man paints himself in such a horrendous light and then tells everyone? A man that's built his life in the city of God. And he realizes, I have no shame. I have no condemnation. I've been forgiven. I'm so loved by God. I don't mind what you know about me anymore. If Jonah can change and become God's servant to the big bad city, so can you. Don't say God can't change you. Let's love the city of Dublin, but let's love the city of God more. As we do, we'll love Dublin effectively. The best way to love Dublin is to recognize its shortcoming its shortcomings, and then spread the kingdom of love, service, power, and not power, and self-promotion. Love the city. Invest in the city. Stay in the city. Pray for the city. Fear no evil. God is with us. Our hope and our security are in the city of God. Will you stand? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing to finish. Let's take a moment for you just to consider what it means to hear the call of God to the city for yourself. What are some of the sacrifices? Where is some of the Jonah syndrome that you want a nice green leafy thing outside and he's calling you in. Let's take a moment. If you're comfortable, you can just close your eyes as a way of preparing your heart to sing, preparing your heart to worship, preparing your heart to respond to God's word through song. song we're going to sing is called Awake, Awake, O Zion. And Zion in the New Testament symbolizes the church. And Jerusalem, when it talks about Jerusalem, it symbolizes the church. It's from all from the book of Isaiah, calling God's people to rise up and be a witness. And so the language about Zion and Jerusalem is all about God's people for the city we live in. So I want us to sing this and I want us to respond. So Father, we thank you for the book of Jonah, a great story for our day. How do we love our city? How do we not over-identify nor under-identify? How do we have our hopes and our security, not in wealth and career and pleasure and the things that the city of man promotes, but in, in you? We thank you for the city of God. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that makes glad the church. And we thank you that it, it will never fall. It will never be shattered. Where we feel fragile, where we feel like Jonah, Lord, come and meet us now as we respond. And may we rise up to be your people here.